0: It's Carcon Carne, let's eat in the car, it's Carcon Carne,
1: and now here's the star of our show, James Van Aster.
0: And it's Carcon Carne, we are live, welcome back to the working week, such as it is. Carcone Carney sponsored by CH Financial Services. As everyone's trying to figure their way through the living under a pandemic, CH Financial Services is here to help. They offer a variety of project products ranging from traditional merchant accounts to a zero-cost payment processing solution. Which eliminates the expense associated with accepting Visa, MasterCard, Discover, and American Express as a form of customer payment. C&H Financial Services eTab solution is easy to set up for your business for online ordering and curbside pickup. C&H also offers cost effective commercial lending programs, which can help get your business the money it needs to make it through these unprecedented times. To learn more, contact CH Financial Services at 855 600 2437 or go to chfs. My guest tonight, he is an author. He's a celebrated music author. He has chronicled the band Rush in many different ways and forms through the years. He is Martin Popoff. Good evening, Martin. Yeah, good evening, James. Thanks for having me. So we are are mid-trilogy with your latest round of Rush writings. Uh, Earlier, you published Anthem, Rush in the 70s, and you just put out Limelight, Rush in the 80s. So you've zeroed in on this decade, which... I I put it in the Facebook post in the description. What a productive time. Seven studio albums, two live albums over the course of 10 years. That's a lot of stuff to talk about.
1: Yeah, that's actually a lot for a band to put out in the 80s. I mean, in the 70s, that was a pace that was kind of expected. And I don't know how many rock stars have told me in our contract, we had to put out two albums a year and no one ever did that. I mean, (laughs) there's like a few bands that actually put out two albums every year. But I mean, most of them were good for one every year. But yeah, you're right. When you add that up and and the two live albums, that's that's quite a bit to do in the 80s when you're when you're already like an arena band. So it's, it's not even like a small situation where you're You know, in the 70s, you were on the road, you'd come off the road for two weeks and you'd write it and then you'd go back on the road and all that stuff. I guess that's how they got everything done. And they were young and hungry. Right. Um, But uh, but yeah, that's a lot of output for for a band in the 80s. for sure.
0: So I mentioned that you've written a lot about Rush through the years. At this point, when you sit down to write about the band, do the, the dates and timelines and facts just spill out of your head onto the
1: manuscript? No, I mean, part of part of the reason I like to do these books is that um, I can take all that trivia and put it on the page. So I spill it out of my head and and I don't have to remember the stuff anymore. I'm shocked how much stuff I don't remember. But yeah, I mean, I, I guess I guess I do remember a lot now because there was the contents under pressure original book there was the illustrated history that we talked about there was the album by album and now there's this trilogy and they're and they're all very different books and and because they're very very different books is the only reason I was able to do this trilogy because you know after this I'm I'm truly all rushed out I think
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, well I mean you go so in depth in in this book and an anthem. I mean this is this is nerdvana for rush fans I mean just all the details the the behind the scenes in the studio on the road, the strategies, the, the marketing. How let's talk about where you sourced all these interviews from because you've got quotes from Neil, you've got quotes from all the guys, management, crew. Are these new interviews? Are these archival things that you tapped for for the book?
1: Yeah. So essentially what happened and the reason this could happen. So as, as I mentioned, like all the books are quite different. So they're the 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 what the, the one okay so the one linchpin reason that this could happen is because First of all, it's the same publisher as the official authorized Rush book I did way back in 2003, my first one, Contents Under Pressure, through ECW Press. So that's number one. Number two, What I did almost basically on a whim, and even before I had a publishing deal, I was just, I I worked for Banger Films as well. I've done work on, well, The Rush movie, which I'll get to in a minute, but ZZ Top movie, uh, Alice Cooper, we did Metal Evolution, Rock Icons, uh, all these things, right? Um, uh, So basically, I I just thought, you know, I I also do a lot of transcribing work for Banger, and, and in that guise, I get to see like all these great interviews that, that very little gets used from. But the Rush one, I was intimately like I was a full time, uh, you know, uh, a worker on that at the research and writing end of it, the front end of it for like nine months and then kept going on after that. But so I had transcribed a lot of those interviews as well. So I just thought one day, you know what if uh, it's a bunch of years have passed? Why don't I throw Scott and you know and uh, and Sam a bit of a deal and say, look, well, how about we I pay a bit of cash, and I I can use these interviews and I'll I'll do some book stuff out of it. And they said, yeah, it's fine if the Rush office is fine with it. David, their lawyer's a buddy of mine and and theirs as well. So we asked we asked David, we asked Peggy. They basically said, yeah, that's fine. You don't have to pay us anything either, and just go ahead and do it. So so that was the big thing. It's like. We've got this massive bank of stuff that didn't get used for the movie because the movie's only 88 minutes long. Um, And uh, and that caused this whole thing to happen. The other thing is um, I uh, I was inspired by kind of doing more analysis because I had to do a lot of analyzing of songs, like literally write about every song for this clash in this Led Zeppelin book that I did. And then I thought, okay, the only other Rush book I ever used the outside press in because I didn't on contents originally was that illustrated history. So let's put all that stuff together and see what we've got for the for the grand final. Just just just, you know, throw up all over the page, all these words and see how much there is. So I started working on it. And very quickly, I realized this is not one book. This is because that was the original plan too the mother of all rush books, a 500 page rush book. But when it all comes out now, it's, we've got more like, uh, we've got more like 900 or a thousand pages uh, between this. So, so I just thought I've done this before with trilogies of Iron Maiden, uh, Thin Lizzy. I've done two Sabbath, two priests, two Deep Purple. Um, So I just thought, okay, what's the best way to break this up? And I was working out the word count and all that. And lo and behold, it comes out to three books. So that's that's how she happened.
0: I love it. And before we dig into the book, since you have spent so much time thinking about writing about talking about Rush, what is it about this band?
1: Well, um, many things, Uh, you know, they're a band that invented a genre. So they invented something called progressive metal pretty clearly. I mean, no one else really comes close to just literally taking progressive rock and heavy metal and slamming them together. I mean, every, every other band you can think of that kind of did this, uh, any, in, you know, in any time early on, i.e. before whatever Queens, Fates warning dream theater, whatever, say, say the seventies through the early eighties, there's, there's a major qualification with the way you describe that. So that's one thing. Um, They have this crazy, almost novelty lead singer. They're Canadian. They're a trio doing all this. Um, Really interesting lyrics. A drummer who may go down in history as the greatest drummer of all time. I mean, and that's, that's a silly thing to say in certain respects, but he literally is probably the first guy that comes to mind now after a lot of years, you know, after, you know, after say Neil was, it was 1977. And back then you might've said John Bonham or whatever. But now I think because we just went through this with the death of Eddie, um, Eddie Van Halen, I, I think people basically now will call Eddie Van Halen the greatest guitarist of all time, you know, kind of kind of softening and lowering and remembering how, how often you want to call Jimi Hendrix that, right? And I think Neil Peart's got the same thing going with John Bonham. So arguably... The greatest most beloved drummer of all time certainly the most air drum drummer of all time uh, <laughs> tons of records loads of success big big super successful band uh you know basically playing hockey barns as a headliner since you know about 1978-79 and never right. stopped right went all the way to uh, 2015 i guess it is um so yeah, a lot of things about them, and and uh, yeah, and it's odd that they're Canadian. I'm Canadian, so it's a it's a big deal. It's it's the biggest band ever to come out of Canada, um, you know, and probably even the biggest artist, depending on what you think of Celine Dion. But probably bigger. Well, maybe not even bigger than Brian Adams, because Brian Adams has a diamond album, doesn't he, in the states? I think he does. I'm sure uh, he does, does not so. have any diamond albums, but they have many, many, many gold and platinum albums, right? So um, yeah. So there's there's a lot there's a lot of pretty pretty cool weird reasons to uh to to think of Rush as something kind of special.
0: Agreed. All right. So let's kind of bounce bounce ahead going album by album through some of your observations and feelings that are in the new book which again just came out it is Limelight Rush in the 80s. You start logically enough with Permanent Waves, an album that hit number 3 in the United States described as the band's anti-hemispheres. This was it's impressive in the book that it was really important for the band to have a radio moment. They found it with the spirit of radio. But this this was definitely a symbolically at the beginning of the 80s. And aesthetically, this was a a turning point for the band.
1: Yeah, but maybe not so much as, as history has it. I mean, that's still a pretty heavy and progressive song. It's not like Closer to the Heart. It's not like Fly by Night. So it's still, it's, it's like hemispheres condensed down into whatever it is, five minutes or so. Um, and, and the other songs are shorter as well, but they're not that short. Um, the album in Total is short because there's not that many songs on it. But, you know, essentially essentially, it's not a lot different from hemispheres or 2112 or farewell to kings except that um, basically they they've carved all the songs into sort of long instead of just just, just <laughs> super long ones and it's not about greek mythology and sci-fi and all that so so the lyrics there's a subtle there's a subtle like neil's getting kind of more universal and more poetic and more useful to to you know unnerdy let's say Um, but it's still a pretty progressive album. I mean, uh, free, free will granted is, is pretty catchy. Um, but you know, it's not much catchier than the trees was or, or closer to the heart, certainly. Uh, and spirit of radio is, um, the spirit of radio, sorry, uh, is, um, you know, it's it's kind of similar to circumstances or a farewell to kings, not 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 much different. I mean, it's still pretty complicated. So, you know, I I think uh, I think as we move forward, I I think it's a gradual thing that goes on there.
0: All right. And speaking of hemispheres, natural science described in the book as being the most hemispheres-like on permanent waves, which is a totally fair thing. Sure. To that say. Makes
1: sense. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And the spirit of radio uh, <laughs> described as a wacky hit single, and that it, it definitely shattered a lot of conventions of what we, i think we understand hit singles to be made of uh, you talk about Lifeson's kaleidoscopic guitar intro which by the way is about the best way to describe that introduction to that song that was perfect when i read that uh, but yeah i mean it, it it's goofy in that it's all over the place there's the reggae vibe it's certainly not what a traditional pop song sounded like circa 1980
1: No, but we did have Bohemian Rhapsody. We had Carry On, Wayward Son. You know, people like these odd, weird... We had Ram Jam, Black Betty. I mean, people like novelty, weird things. They like songs that stop and start, and they like... You know, drum fills and and, you know, after a few plays, they like to know where things go. I mean, it has that one really cool part in it that's that's made to simulate the, the spinning of a radio dial that you get different kinds of music as you turn a radio dial. Um, but, yeah, you know, the reggae part's kind of a little little lighthearted thing. Uh, the verses are just pretty heavy rock and roll. Um, You know, when it goes concert hall, you know, there's the big kind of like stadium rock feel to it. So, you know, it's really I mean, if you think about it, it's not so much different than than Bohemian Rhapsody or Carry On Wayward Son in that respect.
0: Fair. Moving pictures. I, as we talk about diamond album sales and such, I was surprised to learn. And I mean, the information has been out there forever, but I was surprised to learn this only went four times platinum. Yeah, it feels like it's sold a kajillion copies since its release. Not yeah, so well,
1: four is quite a bit. I mean, I, I there's there's a lot of there's a lot of records that you think would have sold more. I mean, if if you compare to like Kiss records and Iron Maiden records and stuff, I mean, the, you get numbers even way lower than that. So so getting the four, you know. If you're the rock star in Rush, you shouldn't feel too bitter about that. I mean, I I'm I'm intimately knowledgeable about Blue Oyster Cult. I've written two Blue Oyster Cult books, and I know all those guys. And uh, and I know they're a little bitter about their career. And sometimes I sit back and go, you know, you had three or four gold albums and a platinum and a double platinum and stuff. You did pretty damn good, right? So four's not bad. And everything around it, they have a lot of platinums and they have a lot of golds. But uh, I I know your point. I mean, you you see some weird figures when it comes to RIAA, um you know placements but four, four is a lot four is and
0: that's to go down the blue oyster called rabbit hole the new album's really good
1: yeah it is it's really cool yeah and richie's in there singing and there's 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 poppy buck stuff and there's heavy eric stuff and good lyrics and a lot of songs so and and some neat variety and some lighthearted stuff yeah it's good i, I was not that pleased immediately because I fell victim to the old uh, advanced single syndrome. You know, when, mm-hmm. when the advanced single comes out, and you love it, and then the rest of it is a letdown. And both advanced singles are still my two favorite songs on it. So I hate when that happens. But uh, I, I, that. I could talk your ear off about many times that happened, right? With the advance. <laughs> oh, without a doubt. Kind of song. Yeah.
0: So moving pictures, it's mentioned in the book. Getty found his more natural voice on the album, uh, or put another way, he lost the shriek.
1: Yeah, somewhat. Yeah, um, and I think the big thing about it is you got a side one on that, like every single song is a is a hit. Um, you know, those songs are played on radio all the time, including an instrumental like "Who Knew," right? Uh, and then side two's only got three songs, and that's the dark side of the moon side of it, where uh, where you know those song, songs are not played on the radio. But uh, and you got that nice regal album cover, and it looks all super classy and uh, black and red, and uh, so yeah, it's it's. Uh, I, I, think, I think you get you get um, the things we think about Spirit of Radio times two or three across all four of those songs. So you really get them moving into that thing where, where you're starting to get a, a little more of a con- conventional feel to the songs where, where an average person can kind of process it and, and tap their feet to it a little easier. You know, Limelight's like that, Red barquettes like that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I think I would say all four of those songs... Are, are further than Spirit of Radio in that direction.
0: Uh, YYZ, I think, is the first instrumental I ever
1: liked as a kid. Right, yeah. <laughs> well, remember Frankenstein. I mean, this, there is a history of these instrumentals. There aren't a lot of them, but Frankenstein was a very, you know, Edgar Winner group, right? A yeah. very well-known one. Uh, down this road. (laughs) And I can't
0: hear YYZ without expecting Limelight afterwards. You know how when you listen to an album so much, the track listing is just ingrained and Mm you can't hear the song out of context because you're just expecting that next song in sequence. And I'm actually in that way with Tom Sawyer. I'm with that whole side one, actually.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Because that is one of those iconic, legendary album sides. And the weird side too, uh, I think Vital Signs is a, a quirky, wonderful way to wrap that album up.
1: Yeah, and it's pointing to the future. It's got the keyboard, so it's leading us into signals a little bit. It's got a kind of a, an insistent, repeating key pattern, where which uh, basically starts signals if you think about it. Well, I never thought about it that way. So you've got you've got this this heavy statement on on keyboards on synths and then synth starts the next record which is kind of neat so and then signals is even more of uh, of the same although although now you're you have no long songs anymore right they're all like you know it's it's whatever it is four per side something like that um and uh, and so everything is 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 basically like side 1 of the previous album and and you know that album did it go double platinum or platinum it, it's i think it might even be double Signal. platinum signals
0: well, but before we jump to Signals, we still yeah. have a live album to get through. And yeah. I, I did want to reference Limelight, one of my favorite guitar riffs of all time by any band anywhere. Um, the lyrics of that, it, Neil Parrott's aversion to meet and greets, the trappings of stardom, laid bare. What an interesting dude. He just he never wanted to play that game. He never wanted that 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 temporary awkwardness, that forced smile and he he didn't do it out of anger, he just said, That's not my not my shtick.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's it's kind of an understandable thing if you put yourself in his shoes and just go like Have you know have people tell you how great you are, and then tell you about a song that you've already thought about thousands of times, and you wrote it, and you're you're like, I was there, you know, so I don't need to hear about it anymore. You know what I mean? Like it, it it can it can definitely get. And then when you've been told the same thing over and over again a bunch of times, it's it's probably going to get hard on him, right? So so just taking a compliment was the hard part, I think, for him. He didn't know how to sort of take a compliment and and you know but but in interviews he's great and he if he if it's something that excites him and he wants to talk about he'll talk year off about it right so that that was the cool thing about him and you know the other funny thing is that people think of him as this mysterious guy who didn't talk at all but he he all along the way he did a lot of those rush interviews and he did a lot of the better rush interviews in the press like in the English magazines and stuff like that he you know he would debate politics and he got in a lot of trouble for all all the an rand stuff and um yeah. you know but he was he was just uh he had his hand up doing as many interviews as the other guys really for in the press in the early days
0: so when i was a kid live albums from bands were a cheap way to basically get a greatest hits from a band without having to buy all the separate albums it was kind of like a, a cheat or a workaround if you were a fan of a band yeah. exit stage left for me served that purpose to some extent it was like a like a greatest hits collection. Uh, I just realized from reading your book that the title of the album was based on the cartoon snaggle puss. I always assumed that, but I didn't know that for sure.
1: Yeah. So it's, yeah that's a you can takeaway. look that up on youtube it's pretty cool you could just see it right there right uh-huh. all these things you know and uh yeah it's and that live album you know it's like the band is a little bit uh ambivalent about it they they know that they kind of touched it up and stuff and it's a little bit bloated and it sounds a little bit you know it, it's that whole second live album of these bands is is the corporate bloated one and the first one's the exciting one right um so i think everybody most rush fans have more fondness for all the world's a stage over that one, um, but then that one looks looks in a much better light when you compare it to a show of hands later on, right? And then and then all of a sudden you're in the the format of the live albums are not special situation anymore, and Rush is as guilty of that as anybody else. You just lose track of all the live albums after a while. There's just so many of them. Agreed. Uh, in, and near the end of the, the career, but uh, at that at this point, it's all still fairly special. And, and this is them putting out a live album at the absolute peak of their powers and of their fame, which is kind of cool. So it, it's a, it's a great, greatest hits album, Yeah.
0: So we started to dance around signals. Uh, Alex Lifeson says signals was a turning point and yeah, the songs were shorter. The keyboards started to take center stage everywhere. Um, I would argue, and maybe you'd agree, maybe not. I think subdivisions is a top three song period for the band.
1: Oh yeah, for sure. Um and, and just really brave to do that. You know, it's it's in the it's in a, a line of a pedigree of Led Zeppelin in through the outdoor through Rush through Van Halen doing jump, things like that, right? Um <clears throat> uh Genesis going pretty pretty synthy over time, right? Oh yeah. Um but, uh, but yeah, and it's I've often called it my favorite rush album. I, I really love the production of it. I find it very analogy and it's a beautiful blend between Alex, Alex's sound and these, these synths and keys, which are not braying yet. they're not, they're not modern. I, I think they aged well um, because they just sound like good old 70s craftwork and Angel and deep purple synths and keys not really deep purple i mean it's not a hammond sound but uh but basically um they're they're very behaved sounding they, they they aren't intrusive they aren't just gaudy um and i think it just all blends really well on that album i, I love losing it a lot and countdown's really cool and analog kid and Um, and new world, man, the single, the single's amazing. Um, you know, short, little cool, slightly humorous, slightly policey single short song. Um, so yeah, I, I just think, I I just think they hit it on all cylinders on that album. And, and while still being creatively brave, I mean, they are, you know, they aren't, they aren't making the same album over again, even though the previous album was a big hit and it's just Getty being fearlessly creative.
0: See, it's interesting. You you mentioned new world, man. I, my your experience with Blue Oyster cult's new album i had kind of the opposite feeling when signals came out as a kid we, our first hint of it was new world man didn't like it at all and i thought as a kid oh this this album is going to suck then i heard the album and i heard digital man i heard subdivisions i heard the weapon i'm like oh this is fantastic new world man never connected with me
1: yeah well sometimes the advanced single is is mellower and weirder than what you're going to get um you know, I, I think Jump was an advanced single, if I yeah. remember correctly. Um, sc- on Scorpions, Rock You Like a Hurricane turned out to be the best song on the album. The rest of it was stupider sounding. That had really sophisticated, True. weird chord changes, right? Uh-huh. And it was like, I was like excited about this new direction, right? I remember Enter Sandman came out. Enter Sandman uh, is probably the best song on, on that Black album. It's super catchy. It's It's got at least a little speed to it. It's not completely doomy. It's groovy. Um, so I was disappointed when that one happened. Uh, I think of Leonard Cohen closing time. I think of Jesus Christ pose, Soundgarden. There's so many examples where, yeah. where rock or bust. I mean, that that one just killed me. ACDC. I love play ball, hate the whole rest of the album. ACDC is one of my favorite bands of all time. Yeah, it kills me to say I hate rock or bust. I hate rock or bust. And I love black ice, right? Um, but but yeah, play ball. Totally killer ACDC song. Even this new one, "Shot in the Dark." I'm a little bit wary, right? Because I love "Shot in the Dark." It's like, what's the rest of it going to sound like? Is it gonna <laughs> so true. All over again, right?
0: So let's jump to "Grace Under Pressure" uh, in the book. It's described as their shift into preppy adulthood, haircuts included. This is this is '80s Rush right here.
1: Yeah, it, it's not so bad, you know. I'm I'm a big enough Rush fan that I that I keep along, and I'm 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 grabbing one that a lot of people maybe are starting to go downhill on, but I'm a dedicated enough, enough Rush fan to still love this album, um, but I, I, will, I will dismiss later albums. You know, certain Rush fans will say, you gotta love every album, right? But, uh, but no, this is, this is like a cold clinical album. Uh, they have bad memories of making it because it was freezing cold when they were making it. They got stood up by Steve Lillywhite, so they're working with this Peter Henderson who's not giving them enough advice. He's not being like uh, forceful enough with opinions. So it's kind of left to them. It was a lot of work. It was a big grind and a lot of hours, but I, st- I still think I, I, I do really like it, but it is a little harsher on the production um, and it's got, it's got some weirdness to it, but it's not a new direction completely the way power windows kind of is. It's interesting. You should
0: say that about the production rush at that point, as big as it gets, you really need a producer with the resume and just that kind of alpha personality to be able to stand up to Rush because I'm sure they, they could roll over anybody because they kind of knew it all. They knew how to play better than anyone.
1: They've had you know
0: successful album after a successful album. I'm sure it was really easy for a lighter weight producer to get steamrolled.
1: Yeah, but they didn't want to get steamrolled. That's the thing. They they are so creative that they want another creative voice in the room. They're they're strong willed guys, but they're actually um, they love that extra confrontation and being told no, and and really go through it, at, you know, for the sake of the music. Um, that's the cool thing about them. They weren't really prima donnas about it. They really were were just they they loved other creative minds and they appreciated smart people in the room. And that's why when you get to Power Windows and you get Peter Peter Collins in there, called Mr. Big, um, you know he there's certain things he didn't like about Rush and they were they were fine with that.
0: Yeah. So Power Windows, you kind of mentioned this already. There was precedent. There was In Through the Outdoor from Zeppelin, 1984 from Van Halen. Here we are at Power Windows, an album that Neil Peart said he really liked and Geddy Lee said he felt was important.
1: Yeah. So it's funny. Um, you know, everybody has their own taste in music and that could be, you know, you and me as fans looking at rush, it could be guys inside rush and you go, well, that's really strange. I mean, they have strange taste in music and, and, and honestly, like I've, I've come to this realization that, that, um, when I say I don't like this bank of albums coming up and, and power windows is one of them where it's starting to go downhill. I mean, I still appreciate some things about it. Um, but, but the previous album, I like way, way more. Um, but, but, you know, you can almost say uh, when you hear those opinions and, and them, them liking it and standing by it and, and then Neil shockingly kind of dismissing a lot of the seventies stuff, all you can say at one point is, I guess, I guess Neil and I don't have the same taste in music. I guess Getty and I don't have the same taste in music. Right. Um, I'm going through this. I'm writing an angel book right now. Right. And uh, and Punky Meadows was a, is a fascinating character. Uh, and, and um, you know, he loves that poppy era of the band, the sinful white hot era and, and less so the proggy heavy end of it. And he's not a Sabbath fan and all this stuff. Right. And it's like, Wow, you know, I guess people do have different tastes in music, and that's why they do what they do. And so he stands by those albums. A lot of Angel fans, at least, especially if you're older, uh, you know, you you think the first two are masterpieces, right? And then and then the later ones not so much, right? So so yeah, it's it's funny the the guys do stand by these records, and uh, and I disagree with them, I guess. Hey,
0: it's interesting. You mentioned a little bit ago about how you know fans think that if you like the band, you got to be all in for every album. I think over four plus decades, there might be a stinker or two or an album that doesn't, you're allowed to audible and say, yeah, that one doesn't work for me. You're allowed to say, you know what? Crest of Steel was not an album I wanted to listen to more than a couple of times. I was good. Uh, But you can love the stuff that's really good and appreciate the fact that a band's not going to be perfect every time out, as far as your understanding what perfect is.
1: Yeah. And, uh, and then there's other times where you go, I don't like an album by a band, but I have so much confidence in them that they're geniuses. And it's just like these particular types of chord changes and songs I don't like. And you listen to a 10 track album and you like only four songs and you move on, but you respect the album. But with Rush, I don't feel that way about hold your fire and stuff. I, I don't, I don't have confidence that the band is doing the right thing because to me, they were kind of proven wrong by how dated these records sounded so they dove into all this technology and it was an error you can you can actually have errors uh in a certain in a certain way and go you know that was not a great creative idea so so it's funny so so there are albums you know ah oh boy what what would be examples um i mean i was just uh, on on a buddy of mine's show this morning we were going through the pantera catalog and that uh, Pantera kind of got subtly more artistic as they went on towards the end of the band. They didn't make a lot of albums in the, in the, you know, the, the Atco era where they were this very different sounding mm-hmm. band, but a lot of things they were doing are kind of atonal and weird and strange, but you still respect it and you cheer it on and you go, that's just not for me. But certain, certain things with Rush, I go, that's a bad taste. You know, that that's not just for me. It's, just not good music that you made there. Right. I mean, I mean, this stuff did not stand the test of time. It sounds dated. I don't know why you're doing this. Those sounds are just hard on the ears. It's, it's just trite or silly music or something. I don't know. So, so yeah, sometimes I think uh, sometimes I think, you you know, certain bands, you, you, you can you can't kind of make a wrong turn. Sure. I, I can't listen to big money again right <laughs> well that one has at least got some guitar in it but i mean when you get into to hold your fire and some of the things are presto that's when i really like uh, like getty I, I get even worse about it but uh big money yeah it's a it's a funny one see that that is another one that uh, i was still excited for the album to come out and that was an advanced single if i remember correct mm-hmm. so so we were hearing that for a month or two or whatever it was and just getting acclimat, acclimatized to it but then I, I think a bunch of other songs on it are maybe even worse than that. So I don't know. All right. So let's jump into Hold Your Fire.
0: Here's the thing I still, when I hear Time Stand Still, it still connects with me. It still sounds like a great single. I, I still really like that song. I don't love the album by any stretch, but that song to me, st- when
1: I saw them play it live earlier this century, I thought it held up too. Am I crazy? Yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm not a big fan of it. And I'm, I'm running it through my head as you're saying that. And it's going, you know, and I'm thinking you get to the chorus and what is Neil doing? He's going <laughs> like, is that in good taste? Is that a good drum part for that? I don't think it is. Right. You know, he's going <clears throat> <clears throat> a little bit strong. <clears throat> like, I, I don't know. I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm listening to this stuff and going, you guys are making weird decisions that i don't think are creative genius i just think they're in bad taste so and and the production and the arrangement and i don't know the parts and alex's guitar sound and there's no bass on the record right i mean that's i mean when there's no bass on a record is that is that a flaw but not to not according to peter collins or you know the genius right Oh, this is how we do it in England. We do we we have uh we have uh this 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 screechy mid range tone. Maybe it sounds great on radio. I don't know why you're doing it, but I don't want to hear that. You know, so I don't know.
0: I, I was definitely surprised in recentish tours uh, when they'd pull songs off that album, like Mission or <laughs> I. I, I just, maybe they they're just left. They're better left in the nineteen
1: eighties. Yeah, or or. You know, I, I often think, I, you know, when I went through those albums and I'm thinking about them, thinking if you had a completely new remix on this and, and you had them heavied up or something. Um, but that's what that's what playing these songs live can do. So sometimes yeah. these thin songs, case in point, Kiss Dressed to Kill, Kiss Alive. Um, you know, when you have these thin songs and you do it properly in a live situation, You you could heavy them all up. Right. I mean, I don't think they did on a show of hands, but it but it's not out of the question. And when you're sitting there in a live show and it's completely loud and boomy and all that stuff, I I think um, I think all the songs get a get a leveling of power and it's all raised. But some of the ones that were so unpowerful to begin with benefit better from that raise. Right. So
0: presto, Neil said, this is the one they'd like to do again. They said it didn't reach the potential that it had going back to what you're just saying about hold your fire. I mean, the ability to go back in and produce it. I mean, is there good enough stuff there that a remix or a remastering or something could make it more palatable?
1: I don't think so because they made so many decisions that were down this road of this this Rupert Hine I mean this album is is ostensibly the oh I'm, we're learning our our songwriting's getting better and I'm it's a singing album my singing is better and all this stuff right I mean I don't I don't know any difference or if, I mean he's he's just not pushing as much air so so he's not shrieking and all that stuff so so I guess he's crooning more but, uh, but still, I mean, I always look at this album and, I, and I, I think of the band at this point and it sounds like three crickets playing in a matchbox, right? I mean, it, they're just, everything sounds so small, right? And and it's just all this new gear and, and, it's, and it's just all this poppy, the fix sound, right? Um, yes. Just <laughs> all this, uh, you know, just just this really thin Duran Duran and screeching and high and clattering and drums and and, you know, electronic drums and stuff. So... I don't know. I mean, it's, uh, you know, and they're not a band kind of known to groove, but they could groove in the old days when it was guitar, bass and drums and stuff. That's not their big forte and that's fine. But here everything seems like very locked to a grid and small at the same time. So it's, yeah, it's just very weird. I no, I, I don't think it's the kind of thing you could fix, you could fix up, but I often have this fantasy when I'm out jogging, listening on my iPod and stuff, when I hear certain songs and I go, the chord changes of that are moody and dark enough that you could actually make a heavy metal version of this. And that would be cool. So yeah, it would have been cool to hear heavy metal versions of some of these songs. <laughs> in the 80s, right. So we're talking about
0: the, the newly released book. It's limelight rush in the eighties. It's the follow up to Anthem rush in the seventies. That album we just talked about that. That's it for the 1980s. That's that, that puts a, puts a,
1: Puts a close to the 80s. Presto was it. Next up, what's the third volume going to be? It's called Driven, Rush in the 90s, and then in quote marks, in the end. And I actually noticed this the other day. It's the, it's the thickest of all these books. So it's, it's thicker than the first book by about 60 pages or 70 pages or something. Yeah, so it's, it's a big book. Um, but yeah, Rush starts out with Roll the Bones, which is basically Presto Part 2. There's not a big difference. Uh, it's, it's kind of the same sort of album again. Those two are a pair. Hold Your Fire and Power Windows is a pair. I think, I think Moving Pictures and Signals are a pair. Grace Under Pressure stands alone. I don't think it pairs up with anything. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's a lot of great stuff in the 80s. I, I mean, don't get me wrong. And I don't really hate those records, those later on records. It's just kind of the general di- uh, direction, right? Um, and so and the context, of, the context of yeah. how prolific they were,
0: I think, is helpful. Yeah. yeah, there were some albums that were misses, but again, this is a band that, this band, this technically magnificent band, managed to put out seven studio albums and tour, and put out a couple live albums all over yeah. the span of ten years. That's a pretty superhuman feat for a band like Rush.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. And 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 as we were saying earlier in the '80s, there, you know most bands started stretching out probably a little more than Russia. And that's, and that's why they're so exhausted when they get to the nineties and, and they really start stretching out and become, you know, get into other things in their lives. Right. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm sure when they look back at the eighties, they, they say, man, we must've worked almost as hard as we worked in the seventies.
0: I'm very interested to read the next volume because here in the States, I, I don't know what it was like in Canada, but in the States, I, I we kind of lost focus on rush. And I don't know if it was an international thing, but certainly in the States, the microscope was off the band. the The big yeah. hit making days of the eighties were over. I think there's a lot that we, as fans or even passive observers, might have missed in the nineties. So I'm really interested to to see what comes out of this next book.
1: Yeah, you know it's it's funny. I mean, every record would come out, and you'd get you'd get enough journalists really excited about it, and saying. Wow, Rush is back. They the guitars are back and, and never never really was the case or they're heavy again or whatever, right? And 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 it's like when when you looked at the album that wasn't really the case, but the other amazing thing about Rush that's really cool is that the show just kept getting bigger and more elaborate and and so, you know, this is this is the point where where the the radar is off, but they would go on tour and they'd still sell a lot of tickets and have this massive show. Right. And then eventually no backup bands, right. It was three hours of rush an evening of rush, right. An evening with rush or whatever. So, you know, they were still this huge band, but, but a band that didn't get talked about anymore. So that, that's kind of the funny thing about it. Um, Everybody's going to see them, but no one was really paying attention to the records.
0: Can we preview the book just by asking the first song on the first album of the nineties, it's a song that I came to love just from seeing it live enough that I went back and started to appreciate it on album and that streamline.
1: Yeah, and that's a pretty big one. I mean, and you know, every album. I mean, even the ones we've just talked about, everything has got its sort of big classic song. Um, so that's that's big. Um, but like I say, that album is still more um, light on the guitars. Uh, you know, kind of acoustic being massaged into things. It's very much like Presto. But the next one. Counterparts has got "Stick It Out" as an advanced single, which was super heavy, and and a <laughs> lot of that album has a lot of good high fidelity bottom end guitars. The guitars are really quite back, so that album is the first one where there's this muscular sound. You get echo I love Vapor Trails. Uh, they made a concept album later that's pretty heavy. So there's a lot of stuff going on in the '90s. Obviously, a lot of bad news as well, but um, but yeah, a lot of different records again, and uh, and I think the track record. Um, the track record of those records is better. I'm not a big Test for Echo fan, but pretty much everything except for Test for Echo and I would say Roll the Bones is is really cool stuff. So
0: just to to totally pare things down to their essence, Anthem is the story of a band ascending. Limelight would be the band hitting their superstar peak. Is the next volume more of the band just finding their own Sense of self, their own place in the universe, or finding comfort with who they are.
1: Yeah, I would say so. That's a really good way of putting it because they they got into so many different non music things in their lives. They beca- they all became kind of Renaissance men in their own own um, you know right. Um, all different from each other, all like elder statesmen of rock. You know, just kind of wealthy rock stars, right. Um, and, and, you know, the records are all very different, but that's because there's quite a, quite a gap between them, I suppose, as well. Um, there's a couple of solo projects in there. Um, Neil goes through kind of a drumming renaissance when he does, you know, the traditional grip thing with Freddie Gruber. So a lot of stuff happens. I mean, and the last book, I suppose it's longer also because it does cover 25 years, basically, yeah. instead of these ones covering 10 apiece.
0: All right. So again, the book is available now, the the latest book, Limelight Rush in the 80s. Uh, You are so detailed and there are so many nuggets to pull out of this. If you're a Rush fan, even if you have a fleeting interest in Rush, this is just a fascinating music story. Thank you for writing it.
1: Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much for having me. This has been a great chat.